everyone. I'm really glad to be here today. Um, as you know, very honored. I'm very thankful for the guys that led worship this morning. As you know, I do this every week, so it's not often that I get to stand in the back and and sing. So I'm I'm very thankful, and I and I pray that as we get into something today that's going to be a little weighty in nature, in the sense that this is going to be a topic that's very similar to you just opening up a systematic theology book and reading, that we can make the connection go from our head to our hearts. Because that's the, that's the important connection about the doctrine of justification, is that we've got to take what's true about what we know about God through his word here and let it infiltrate and penetrate our hearts so that we live differently. And so before we start, I just want to pray again in light of what we've just sung about and just um, enter into this time and, and with reverence. So let's pray. Father God, we do we thank you so much for the glories of the gospel that we just sang about, God, that we celebrate every Sunday when we come here. God, that song, it mentions how could, we just don't understand how we could be reconciled to you because we're condemned and unclean. Uh, but God, that's the, that's the amazing fact about the good news is that this, this story that you've, you've played out through all of history into now and this redemption that you've given us through Christ is based off of this amazing grace that we, we cannot comprehend, God, and, and I will never be able to comprehend it, but I'm so thankful that in the present I can, I can rejoice in knowing that there is now no condemnation for me um, because I'm in Christ, and I'm so thankful for um, the fact that my chains are gone. And so, God, I pray that as we get into this, Lord, that you would um, speak powerfully through the, the, the Scripture passages that we read, just the topic as a whole, God, and, and help us make the connection from our, our head to our heart so that we can be uh, more empowered to take this good news to others, but that we could also be uh, reminded of the truths that we're supposed to be teaching ourselves on a daily basis, God, so that we can rest in salvation by faith and not by works. Um, God, we thank you again for the declaration that you made. Um, and God, I pray that you would just be very clear today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, very thankful again to be here. As Adam said, this is a, a unique opportunity that I get to speak, and it's only every once in a while that I get to do it. But we're going to be talking about uh, justification. But before we do, so that we're ready, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to be there whenever I get to that point so we won't have to spend some time turning. Oh yeah, and if you are with Angela and the kids, you can be dismissed now. So today we're talking about justification. And... Really, I want to answer some different points. Um, I've given you some notes. Um, I'm hopefully going to follow them pretty well. I don't have a copy up here, but as you can see, the headings are different questions that I'm really answering or I'm seeking to answer, and that's going to help us take it from our head to our heart. So, what is the point of the reason why it's important for us to talk about justification today? Well, justification or the doctrine of justification, it really, like Adam has already taught us, it it answers the age-old question, the question of the universe. And so I've given you a space for that in your notes because the question of the universe is, in essence, how can sinners be made right with God? How can sinners be made right with God? In My Savior's Love, the song we just sang, it just says, and I wonder how he could love me 
a sinner condemned unclean. wonder how. So this justification kind of shows us how he can do this. So when we talk about doctrines of justification, really quick before I get into it, does anybody know what kind of the word doctrine means in essence? Does anybody have an idea? Doctrine. There you go. System of belief. That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with that because that was great. Um, in systematic theology, we've got the study of God. And so when you open up a systematic theology book, they divide it up into different doctrines. So it's a system or a set of beliefs about a certain topic. So in a systematic theology, we're going systematically through sets of beliefs from here to here to here. So we've got the doctrine of man. We've got the doctrine of salvation. And within the doctrine of salvation, we've got the doctrines of justification and sanctification and adoption. Really, it's just, in essence, a group of teachings that Scripture teaches collectively about a topic. And we're going to examine that today. Because if you said, I'm going to start in the Bible and I want to learn about justification. Well, you'd be starting in Genesis. And you may read for a while before you ever run across the word justified. So the system of of doctrine helps us out because it collects all of what Scripture teaches about this topic. And we could examine it. But as you remember, when Adam was teaching us maybe about a month ago, Maybe long before that, it was we were studying spiritual gifts, different things like that. We talked about doctrines of different levels of importance. Do you remember that? We had doctrines of first importance, second importance, third importance, and on down. And we made a distinction that there are different doctrines that are leveled differently. And so doctrines of third and fourth importance, we may disagree on that, but we're still Christians. You're just not, you're just not Adam said, you're just not him. If you disagree with a point like this, then you're just not where he's at. And an example of something like that would probably be like the timing of Jesus coming back. Um, We can disagree on things like that and still be in the faith. Well, doctrines of second importance, which are closer to the top, there may be other things which Adam said, if you disagree on this, you probably, you're still maybe a believer for sure, but you're not going to want to worship here because you might feel uncomfortable. So that might be an example of something like baptism. Baptism is something that, you know, we would believe is believers' baptism. Well, other friends that we have believe in Baptism by sprinkling or infant baptism. So if you fall in line with those doctrines, you may not want to worship here, but we're still in the faith. Doctrines of first importance are very unique because if you disagree on these, then we're probably not in the faith. Does that make sense? So doctrines of first importance are going to be things like the divinity of Jesus and the Trinitarian view of God being three in one. Well, guess which one justification by faith alone rests in? First. So that's a huge responsibility for me because if I get this wrong, I definitely don't need to be pursuing an eldership because I need to get saved. So (laughs) doctrines of justification is a doctrine of first importance. The Reformation with Martin Luther happened over this central issue. And Martin Luther says that the church should stand or fall on this doctrine. So he means if we get it right, we should stand firm. If we get it wrong, we fall into heresy. Wayne Grudem says, a true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation and all false gospels. So a true view of this is the dividing line between the true gospel and all false gospels. So someone like me, should we should I just take what they say, Grudem and Luther, even though they're great guys and say, man, this is it. This is the dividing line. Well, I'm inclined, unfortunately, to take them at their word. But we need to go beyond that. We need to go to Scripture and figure out, is that what Scripture says? Is it that important? Well, let's go to Galatians 1, since you're there. And let's just read something. Galatians 1, 6. We're going to read 6 through 9. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you 
in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who troubled you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Again, we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In the Greek there, it's like, let him be anathema, which in essence means let him be damned. Let him be cut off. If anybody's taking a different gospel to you than the one that we taught, and he says, and there's not another one, but if anybody's coming in here, let him be cut off. So he's really serious about this. And if you flip over um, to Galatians 2, verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul is, in essence, he's saying, look, this is the gospel that I'm holding to, and I'm explaining it later on. It's that it's by faith. Justification is by faith. Our right standing with God is by faith, and we're going to get to that later. But it's not by works. So this is the same Paul that you hear about in 1 Corinthians that's like, love is patient, love is kind, in Philippians Consider each other's needs above your own. This is the guy that is like the guy that you would want to hang out with because he just seems peaceful and happy. But here in Galatians 1, he's not that at all. So there's obviously an article of the faith that he runs across that he switches modes. And he's like, listen, this is the intolerable point here. If you start adding to the gospel, then you're taking away. It's, it's a different gospel. And let somebody who's doing that be cut off. So Paul... Christ through Paul is setting the foundation here, which Martin Luther reads and sees, and which Grudem reads and sees, and which now we read and see and say, yeah, this is a very important thing. So it's very important that we look into this today. Um, why is it needed? Well, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because that's what we've been doing here in the last couple of weeks. For those of you who don't know, we've been in the book of Romans. We've been examining it chapter by chapter. And so far, Adam has taught us really clearly through Romans 1, 2, and 3 that everyone is in need of a right standing of God. So if this answers the age-old question, how can man be in right standing, then all of us, we've found out, fall into the, 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 the group of people that need to be at right standing with God. But first in your notes, it's important to see that if there was justification, if there is a way for us to be made right with God, and there is, then first, we have to have things that currently separate us from God fixed. Well, there's three things. The first one in your notes is man needs his guilt removed. God is holy and his standard is perfection. So man needs guilt removed. God's standard is perfection. We know that from verses like Matthew 5.20 where Jesus says, Look, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a righteousness that God's concerned about, and he's laying the standard that it's absolute perfection, it's absolute holiness. Well, then everyone falls in the category, as we've seen, that we've missed that mark. Everyone is guilty. That's where Romans 3 talks about. He says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So if by some reason you've come through those first few chapters over the last few weeks, and you don't think that you're in that category, then let me... Um, help convince you that we are. Um, there's another passage in James that I think is really, really unique. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in it at one point 
has been accountable for all of it. So the crazy thing is, is that if you're sitting here and you're saying, yes, I, 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 I see that there's a need, it's important, this is why we should, but I'm not in the category of needing to be made right with God. Well, let me tell you that Scripture says there's God's standard, and if you've messed up in one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And then in Galatians 3, it says that for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So there's a standard. This is the gospel. This is stuff that you guys know. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it because hopefully most of you have already responded to this bad news. That we are under a curse. So if you're sitting here today and you don't feel like you've been justified or made right with God, it's very necessary that you first see that you need to be because the standard is perfection and we've missed that mark. And everyone will give an account to God and God will impartially judge everyone according to their works. This is a thing that Adam read in Romans 2. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. For God shows no partiality. So he says, yeah, there, there's a standard. Good people can go to heaven, but good people don't exist because we've all missed the mark. So that first element that has to be removed in order for us to be made right with God is our guilt. The second thing, though, is that man needs a penalty to be paid. Again, this is just the gospel. This is what we already sang about this morning. But it's important for you to see if you're sitting here, okay, I'm, I see the fact that I'm guilty, but I kind of fell into that. I didn't mean to fall into it. I didn't really do this on my own. Adam's guilt, why am I held accountable for it? Well, it's important to know that all of us have, like Adam said, we have rightfully known what is wrong and we give approval to others or we judge others. We, we do this on our own when we, um, we fall into condemnation by our own merit. And verses like Colossians says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So before we come to Christ, we're, we're enemies of God. And that's affirmed in Romans 5. For if we were enemies before God reconciled us. So Scripture is clear that, hey, you're guilty. But in your guilt, you're also an enemy. And there's a, there's a debt that you've incurred in your guilt. So I know I'm just teaching, like, bad news right here. But this, this is why this is needed. I keep pointing to this as if there's something written there yet, but there's nothing there. But this is why this is needed. Um, you'll see. But wrath is appropriate in this, and, and we've talked about that. He's defined it for us back you know, years ago that wrath is God's proper response to man's sin. Romans 3 says the wages of sin is death. So this is the category that we fall into, but it's very important to think, well, maybe God will... Maybe he'll, he'll, he'll let us off the hook. Well, here's a passage for you in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord, the Lord, is a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You're like, all right. Maybe he'll overlook it. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Comma. But who will by no means clear the guilty? So God is a loving, uh, slow to anger God. But... He's not a pushover, and he will not in any way, by means, any means, clear the guilty. So we've already seen we're, we're guilty, and there's a penalty in our guilt that needs to be paid. But the third thing is, is that man needs a righteousness to be earned. Again, this goes back to that Matthew 5. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is setting the standard. You could be free from guilt. 
your penalty paid, but you have to have a certain righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees for you to make it. So this is kind of the basis and the foundation of why it's important that we study this and the necessity for the doctrine of justification or how we can maybe be right with God. But I want to take some time right now to look at a little bit about what justification means. So, justification means in your notes first. Do you remember what Adam told us it already meant? Anybody? There you go, Will. To be declared righteous. We're going to just kind of break that down a little bit to, to show you why that is. But yes, in essence, the, the doctrine of justification is all about God's declaration that we are righteous. Or that we have a righteousness outside of ourselves more correctly. So the first blank there is that we're declared righteous. Righteousness, though, um, the declaration is obviously the act. You can be declared something in court or anywhere. Somebody could declare something over you. But righteous is the very interesting thing that we need to little examine first. And it, it, in essence, Adam has taught us that it means to be in the right all of the time. So righteousness is being in the right all of the time. Um, but I was, as I was reading in some theology books, they were talking about righteousness in the Old Testament. Could is really the foundation of it is living up to the standards set forth in a particular relationship. So it could be seen in a non-salvific way where David and Saul are together and Saul doesn't, or David doesn't kill Saul and he's considered righteous. Well, he's living up to that, that relationship that's supposed to be and David does what he's supposed to do in that relationship and Scripture considers him righteous in that term. But again, that's not the same righteousness that we're talking about that saves our souls from sin. But there's two different declarations in this declaration of righteousness that I want us to, to see. The first declaration that God says on behalf of us, or on our behalf, is that A, this is in your blank, can anyone guess? Not guilty. Okay, so this is the essence of the good news. We just talked about we're guilty, and when he declares something over us in salvation, the first thing he declares is not guilty. Well, that should be amazing news, but it should also say, make us say, what in the world? How is that possible? And the second one is righteous. So God declares us not guilty, but he declares us righteous as well. So there is a Grudem quote underneath your thing in the notes that I don't have here. Can somebody read that for me? Right, so Grudem is, in essence, saying, look, there's two aspects to this. God first sees and sees that there is a, uh, a clear not guilty charge going on right here, that you are not guilty. But then beyond that, it's being declared righteous. And we're going to get into a little bit of the board that shows how that is. But I wanted to put that in your notes because as you're walking away from this, being declared righteous is, is good, and that's a good... Uh, definition to hold on to, but it's important that you have something a little bit longer that you can hold on to. Maybe you can help teach somebody what it means. Well, first off, it's that God sees Christ's righteousness as belonging to me and my sin is belonging to him, and he declares that that's right by declaring us righteous. Um, declaration is a forensic thing. That's in your notes, forensic. And in essence, that just means legal. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word forensic, I think about CSI. I think about bullet ballistics and angles and 
different experiments. And so if you had asked me last week what forensics meant, I would have told you science. But in essence, it means in a, in a legal setting, a legal proceeding. So all of that science is true, but it's used for what? Well, cases. So it's the bullet ballistics that are used to be able to help them determine a declaration. Is this guy guilty or is he not guilty? So justification is as reform, or not reformers, but uh, as Bible teachers will sometimes refer to it, is forensic justification. And, they, and when you see that, I just want you to know it means, in essence, just legal. We're about legal proceedings. And so I want us to know why, though, that they say that. Do they just say that? Do we just invent this whole courtroom thing that we always use, that God's the judge, we're the sinners, Paul's the, the uh, accusing attorney? Do we just make that up because it's a really good example? Well, this, the word justification is used in a legal sense in Scripture. Deuteronomy 25.1 says, If there is a dispute between men and they go to court, the judges decide their case, justify the righteous, and condemn the wicked. So, in essence, what they're saying here is that, hey, when there's, there's a legal case going on, judges are to decide who is righteous and who's in the wrong. Well, you declare that someone's in the right and you declare that someone's in the wrong. So it's a very legal sense of the term. And then Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. So again, we can see how this is a declaration in a legal way. And it's important to note that it's a declaration because a lot of people that I know, even a good friend of mine, would believe this more as a... Um, not a declaration, but something that actually happens within us. So it's not being declared outside of us. It's something that's happening within us. And we're going to look a little bit later about how we believe that that's not true. It's a declaration, not a transformation. And I guess, well, I guess I could say it now. We can know why it's not a transformation because it says, he who condemns the righteous and he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. If you declare that somebody who's wicked is righteous, can you see how that's wrong? Well, what about if you made someone who's wicked a good righteous, if you made them that internally? Why would that be wrong? That'd be a good thing, right? So it's definitely seen in Scripture as a declaration aspect, not a transformation within it. And this is also seen in Luke 7 where it says, all the people and the tax collectors heard this and they justified God, or they acknowledged His justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They're certainly not changing anything internally about God when they justify God. Instead, they're declaring that God is just. And that's what justification is all about, is the declaration that it's just. But there is a second sense of this word that I want you to write down, and that's demonstrated to be righteous. So the primary use of justification in Scripture is one of declaration. There's also a use that's sometimes used, depending on the context, where it can be seen as a demonstration of righteousness. In Luke 16:15. It says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify your sight, justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. So he's condemning the Pharisees here and being like, Look, you're the ones that are trying to walk around and show off that you're righteous, but God knows who you are on the inside. So he's not saying, Hey, you guys are the ones that walk around and declare that you're right. He's attacking their attempts to show that they're right. And this is also important to distinguish because in James 2, it says something that a lot of us might get stumped if we have an unbelieving friend 
that wants to say, hey, the scriptures contradict itself because in, in Romans 4 it says Abraham was, what, justified by faith. And then in James 2 it says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, how are we spo- what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to deal with the fact that it says in, in Romans, you're justified by faith, and then James says, you're justified by works. Well, for me, for the longest time, I always just avoided it because I knew it couldn't mean that, but I didn't want to know why. Well, it really has to do with understanding that there's this second sense of the word. Can you see how it's, it's very true to say we are justified in Romans 4 by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. We're declared righteous by faith. If we brought that declaration over here into James, we are declared righteous by works. That doesn't work. That doesn't compute. That would be a contradiction. But if we see it in the second sense, we're shown to be righteous. Then it makes perfect sense. Because it says, then you see that a man is shown to be righteous by his, by his works. Works without faith, or faith without works is dead. We know that also in the book of James. So works are important in the sense that they demonstrate that what was true about you on the inside through faith is true about you on the outside. So you see how that kind of works? We're not, we're declared righteous by faith alone. But we are demonstrated that we are righteous by works. But our works definitely do not play into part with God declaring that we are in the right with Him. So what is the basis for this? Obviously, like we're saying, how, how can this happen? How can I, knowing that I'm guilty and unclean, get to a point where I stand right with you and I can stand up on a Sunday morning and sing how marvelous, how marvelous. Well, in Amazing Grace we were talking about, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Because amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it saved a wretch like me. We were lost, but now we're found. Was blind, but now we see. So there's this aspect of We understand we're blind. We understand we're wretches, but now we're this. Well, how did we get there, and how can God do that? How is that right? I asked a guy at work. We had a great opportunity to talk to a guy at work about this this week. He said, I've never heard the word justification. Can you explain it to me? I was like, of course. And so we went into it, and I was like, how can God, like if if we're guilty, how can God, you know, just say that we're righteous all of a sudden? And his answer, like mine back in the past, is just, well, God can do whatever he wants to. And that doesn't work in this case because God has told us, like we already seen in Proverbs 17, 15, that he who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. So the Lord can't come in here and justify us if we are wicked and let us off the hook. There has to be some basis, though, because Scripture says that he does. So what what is that basis? Well, the basis for it by the, the kind of the underlining foundation is God's grace. It is God's grace, but we can see God's grace playing itself out in our lives through this aspect in the teaching of substitution. And so I want to I want to show you which we've already seen in the gospel how substitution works. But a substitute is very similar to a substitute teacher. They come in and they teach on behalf of the teacher that's absent. They take the place of the teacher and they teach. Or a substitute in sports, right? You get a sub, they come in and they play on your behalf. Well, this is how God is able to be just in punishing sin like he needs to be as a good judge, but also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So that first blank there is that our substitute died. And this is the gospel. 
this is the, the foundation of how this becomes good news for us, is that God, in His foreknowledge, before time began, planned a way to send Christ Jesus, His only begotten Son, to earth to pay for our sins. Remember those first two things that have to be dealt with, our guilt and our um, penalty that has to be paid? Well, Jesus came and did that as our substitute. And so this, hopefully we can see, this is how, how we can how he can get away with that is that he's sending somebody to do it on our behalf. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the law, or I'm sorry, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Remember I said earlier, there's a curse that rests on all of us who cannot obey every single point of the law and uphold it. Well, Christ rescues us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through his blood we have redemption. There was a payment that was paid, and Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe, right? Like the song says. In Colossians 2, it says he canceled out the certificate of debt that stood against us, and he nailed it to the cross. So there is a certificate of debt, right, that we owe that stands against us. Well, it was, it was taken away when God nailed Christ to the cross. So as you come this morning, and if you're a recipient of justification, then this obviously has a different um, result for you leaving here. Like, I, I need to leave in worship because everything that I feel about who I am and what I've done and how I could never measure up to God's standard has been met in the sense that Christ has paid for the penalty that I owed to God. And he's taken away the guilt. So we can see how we can come in here and sing, how marvelous, how wonderful, or amazing grace. You saved a wretch like me. He came in here and he did it on our behalf. God is just and the justifier. And I get that from Romans 3, which we read last week. It says we are justified by his grace. Remember, that's the foundation. By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Remember that word propitiation meant a wrath satisfaction. So God's wrath was satisfied through Christ's blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So he remains just because he did punish sin. He's not a, a judge that we can charge with being an in, unjust judge because you just let someone off the hook. No, he paid for it. And he paid for it by punishing our sin through Christ on the cross. But can you see how having that debt paid for is not full justification? That's what I want to hopefully get to this now. Is that Adam's shown us this before. If you open up a theology book, you're going to see even maybe these same circles. Because it's really important that we see that if Christ just comes and wipes our slate clean, that's still not the, uh, gives God the ability to say you're righteous. All that does is you're not guilty. Well, justification is the teaching that we are declared righteous. We're declared as upholding the, uh, the terms of that relationship with God. And so we're going to see how that works itself out because we're definitely not righteous. We know that. No one's righteous. No, not one. But if there was a substitute that came and died on our behalf, 
Well, then there was also the same substitute that came and obeyed on our behalf. So that's the other blank in your notes. Is our substitute obeyed? And this is the difference between innocence and perfection. And again, I keep going back to saying, hey, Adam taught us this, but this is, this, we're in the same book here. We're talking about the same gospel. And the difference between innocence and perfection is that, one, like in a classroom example, you can fail a test. The standard is still you've got to pass the class. And a teacher can come and say, hey, I'm wiping that zero, or I'm wiping that zero away. It's no longer on your account. You can see how that just brings a student to the state of, hey, I don't have the zero anymore. But that certainly doesn't bring them to the state of having passed the class, right? It, doesn't, it hasn't done that. But that's where Christ's substitution and his obedience does do that. Because it's different if a teacher says, hey, not only have I canceled your zero, but I'm applying a perfect score that I took on the test to your account. So now you can pass the class. That's really good news. It's good news, of course, to have a zero taken away. But you're still at the state in which you can fail again. And so this is where we kind of get over here. And I'm going to write this word here. Um, and this is also another doctrinal teaching. Uh-oh. Imputation. Sorry. I can't spell. Imputation. So what I just talked about was the essence that here is morally neutral, obviously, right? Well, here is the aspect where it's negative, and here is the aspect where it's positive. So this is where Adam and Eve started off, right? Well, when they failed to meet God's standard, they shifted to this category, to the to the demerit. You know, like you're in class, you get a demerit. Like you, you have no, you're demerited here. Well, this is obviously the side of it where it's merited. Well, this is the doctrine of imputation is really to be understood as like a great exchange. And it's, it in essence means to be reckoned to one's account. And it's seen in Scripture in three ways. First, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Well, their, their, condom, or their uh, results of their sin was counted to us. So we didn't have to be there to actually sin. We didn't have to do that. But there was this great exchange that happened where their sin... And their charge of sin was transferred to our account. But then the great exchange, the greatest exchange of all time is in the gospel through this imputation idea is that we were here, we've come here. Well, then in substitution, Christ allows us to partake in, the, or God allows us to partake in this righteousness that's outside of our own. So Jesus was the one that came and he upheld the standard. He did everything right. So this is why it's important when you're talking to lost friends that you don't just come up and say, hey, Jesus died for you on the cross. He loves you. That is good news. But that's not it because if you just take that away, we're definitely not there. You see what I'm saying? We're just back to a state of, of moral neutrality. But we have this right here standing against us. So Jesus comes and he says, listen, I've obeyed and I'm, I'm providing this great exchange to where, A, I'll first... Take your sin here, and I can give you righteousness here. But it's really important that we don't see that our sin was not transferred to Christ, and did it give, a, give him lots of demerited marks? No, it didn't. And when he gives us righteousness, does it turn all of our negative marks into positives? No, it doesn't. So this is what, there's this declaration or this forensic aspect where Grudem says, it's, 
God for seeing this thing happen. He's seeing it in, in His justice as being something that's applied to us. So when Christ's righteousness comes, it's more like, I had these little things that are cool. This is here. Well, it's transferred to Christ here. And this is transferred to our account here. So you can see that this doesn't change. This is just a bad example. I mean, I'm hoping that it connects with, but it's not perfect by any means. But in essence, what I didn't want to do is come up here and start changing all the little minus signs, the plus marks, and saying, see, he, he gives us righteousness or he infuses it within us. And then we become righteous because that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And that's what separates us about this faith. But it's more that his gift of righteousness is transferred and ours is here. So you can see that Christ is still righteous. Everything about Jesus is righteous. But when our sin is transferred, God views him as this and treats that as the case and punishes sin through Christ. So he remains just. But then he also is the justifier of those who have faith in Christ because Jesus, there's a righteousness that was outside of ourselves that belonged over here and that's still there but comes and gets applied to our account. And so this is still us. But when God views us through the righteousness of Christ, you can see how we are counted righteous. But is that because of something that we've done or is something that's true about us on the inside? No, it's not. It's because of what's been applied to our account through our union with Christ. And that's where, that's where the, the gospel really comes to focus in the sense that everything that was not true about us can be true about us because Jesus was true for us. And this is where Wayne Grudem, he says, uh, it's kind of, no, it wasn't Grudem, it was another theologian. And he was saying, Millard Erickson, said that it's, it's a lot like two people coming into a union of marriage. One has significant debt and the other one saved a bunch and has a lot of positive net. Well, even in a human example, we could see how in that union, this positive net is really great. It can cancel out this negative. Well, again, not a perfect example, but you can see how when you enter into the union of marriage, if one of them has this incredible amount of positive and another one has a large amount of negative, one can cancel the other one out and they are together positive. Does it make the negative spouse here and her debt or his debt any, you know, recipient of being positive in, in and of himself or herself? No. But they are able to receive the benefits of being in union with the one who has the positive net. So that's where we are with Christ. He has infinite righteousness that was applied to us through faith. Does that make sense? So this, again, this is imputation. It's the idea of exchange. Um, the important thing I wanted you to take away is that it's not good enough, in essence, for him just to come and wipe our sins clean because we just, we become this again. There's a standard that has to be met. And Christ met it. He's the only one that does it. So Adam's right. Good people go to heaven. Well, Jesus is the only one that goes to heaven. He's the only one that was obedient to it. But he did that on our behalf and offers that to us that should we come into faith with him, we come into union, we put him on, we put on Christ. God doesn't have to fake that he see. He kind of. It's not like Christ is here and he has to kind of, you know, pretend not to see us. The union is so together that he can rightly and justly declare as a good judge, that's righteousness. That's righteous. And we get to become part of that through our union with Christ. But that's also important knowing that our sin, whatever God used to count us righteous, was also used to, to punish Christ on the cross. So that's a great exchange. I, this is the good news. 
But this is what should humble us here, is that he was willing to do this. He was willing to take this on. And, we, and I hope you see that this is all of God, because it wasn't the deal is, hey, I can take yours if you'll take mine. The deal was, hey, I'll take yours and I'll give you mine. So it's all of him. It's all of grace. So that's where we are, and this is where we're standing. So that's imputation. A.W. Pink has a quote that I like, and it says, The Lord Jesus has wrought out for his people a perfect righteousness by obeying the law in thought and word and deed. And this righteousness is imputed to them, and it's reckoned to their account. And J.F. Hacker also says, Its basis, justification, the basis for it, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who as the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15, was our representative head, Acting on our behalf, he obeyed the law that found us, endured the retribution for lawlessness that was due to us, and merited our justification on the base of justice done, being punished, and righteousness earned. So as Adam, the first Adam, he sinned and it was transferred to us. Well, Christ is the last Adam. He, as our representative, has earned us what we could never earn. We see how that is? So this is the doctrine of justification. We can be declared right. But we can see how God can legally do that because he legitimately punished sin that was yours and mine on Christ on the cross. And he's legitimately not pretending to say they're righteous. He's legitimately basing it on his grace and giving us a righteousness that's real. But it's important that we see it's imputed. It's not infused. He doesn't make us righteous by planting it within ourselves and then declaring us Andrew, you're righteous because I gave you Christ's righteousness on the inside and it made you a righteous guy and so you are righteous. It's no, man, we are still, we're still needy. We're still sinners. It's imputed to us though where God, you know, he treats us by seeing that union and Christ covering us. And that's what's important. So if you know that, if you've, you've made that assessment here in your head and you're like, okay, great, this is good news. There is a way to have this great exchange. Well, how do we get in on this? How can we get in on this? And that's how is it applied? Well, we receive it, Scripture says, by faith alone. We're going to examine uh, those three words. By. By faith alone. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's a righteousness that's outside of ourselves that we can get in on. And that says through faith is how that happens. Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace, the basis, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order, by, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So there's this righteousness that's available, but the transfer has conditions. And there's a way to receive it. And they say it's by faith. It's through faith. The instrument by which we receive Christ's righteousness is through faith. And Paul is mad in Galatians because people are saying, you can receive this. Sure, faith's important, but you need to be circumcised. And people in our day say, yeah, faith's great, but you need to be baptized. 
You need to have this other aspect. This is the, the, base, the instrument by which you receive this. And Paul's like, no, that is not the gospel. It's by faith, Romans 4, 16 says, it's, it's by faith so that it can rest on grace. And the essence of grace is meaning unmerited. If it's not by faith, it's by something else, then that gives us merit so that we can boast. But Ephesians says it's not based off of that. It's based off grace so that no one can boast. So at the end of time, and even now, we look at God and say, praise be to you who orchestrates and does all of this. There's nothing in and of myself that ever had anything to do with this. It's all a free gift. So I might understand that, and we may have understood that. But how do we get on that? And it's through faith. So by, the thing that I want to emphasize here is that when you see by, I want us to see instrument. It's the instrument by the instrumental cause by which we receive something. It's not because faith alone or or is our faith alone in the sense of like our faith is the work that we exercise that Jesus, or that God then says, Hey, you know, you're righteous. Because I think a lot of us live like that. I know I do. That's in essence it's saying, Hey, I know I'm, I'm I can't be saved by works, but I had faith. And I was counted righteous. But even in saying that, I've got to be careful because I'm, I'm elevating the aspect of the work of me having faith as a work that merited, in some ways, God's declaration. Say, so, yeah, you know what? You are righteous. You did the faith part. But that's not it. It's not a work. By is the instrumental cause. It's the instrument. And I'm really good at making bad examples. But I was thinking, like, how... You know, I was thinking it's an instrument by which something is flowing to us. And I was thinking how, like, you know, in a glass, you've got liquid that needs to come to you. The straw is the instrument by which that liquid comes. Obviously, that's really messed up because you're like sucking it and you're like, there's a lot of work going on in there. But the idea is focus on the straw. Like there is righteousness to be moved, to be applied. And there's a tool by which it flows. It's really more appropriate to be like it's up there and and it's just like pouring down through you because... Grace isn't coming through a straw by any means. But the idea is that if you stick a stick in there and you try to drink it, it's not going to work. So there's a, there's a lot of things that you may try to do to get in on this great exchange here. But the only one that was designed by God to work is through faith. Through. Through. Meaning instrumental cause by which righteousness comes is through faith. Now it rests on faith, again, because if it was on anything else, it would be based off of some type of work. If God said, look, there's a righteousness apart from the law and it's available through love, then what would we do? We would spend our time, at least I would, trying to love as much as I could. Or it's available apart from the law through homeless ministry. You know, then I would be out all the time trying to do that. But faith is the one thing that in and of itself is dependence on someone else. It's trust. And that's what we're going to get to next, is that next word, faith. But it's important to notice that when we say faith, this has always been the cause for people's justification. It's always been the instrument by which they receive righteousness. Abraham, in chapter 4 of Romans, says he was justified by faith. He was counted righteous by God because he believed God. But there's three aspects of faith that I want to kind of point out. And reformers have broken this down in Latin words that I don't know how to pronounce or spell, so I'm not going to do that. But in essence, it's talking about a lot of us see the word faith and we think belief. If I just believe in the things that I've told you today, that's faith. But I think R.C. Sproul says that doesn't do anything but qualify you to be a demon 
Because, and what I mean by that is in the book of James, it says, hey, you do well to believe that God is one, but even the demons do that, and they shudder. They know more about that kind of stuff, seeing it, than, than we do. They were the first ones to notice Jesus for who he was when he was walking around doing ministry. They're the ones in the man that's shuddering. We know who you are, Son of God. Don't banish us. Don't destroy us right now. And other people were walking around being like, I don't know, he might be John the Baptist. I don't know, maybe Elijah. Jesus is like, who do you say that I am? And the demons are like, you're the Son of God. So they know him. They believe right facts about Christ. So if we believe the things that we're talking about today, that's good. But that's only one aspect of it. So faith, the first aspect is having a correct or true information. There's information that we have to have that's, that's true. You can't be saved through information that's not true. So we have to have actual true information. And the second aspect is that we have to actually believe that that information is true. We have to actually come to a mental assessment like, yes, I believe that Jesus was who he says he was. I believe that he has a righteousness that's available apart from the law that can be transferred to my account. I believe that there's nothing that I can do to be saved. But then the third part is it's, a placing, it's placing trust. It's placing the trust of our soul in that information. There's a big difference in saying, I believe that this stool right here can support me. And I'm looking at it and from every... Actually, this stool probably couldn't support us. It's kind of broken. But this stool, I, I believe it can support me. So, is this stool supporting me? Is it? Why not? I'm not sitting on it. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I can assess things are true and even believe with all of my heart, but it's not until I say, you know what? I believe. <laughs> Another bad example because this one is broken. But that's in essence what we're talking about. You see how faith is not a blind faith? It's a faith that's like, it's not like, oh man, I, I think that you, I hope, you know what? I hope. It's No, I know these things to be true. I see this in Scripture. God has regenerated. He's opened up my eyes to see that I can never do this. I can see that Christ has done this on my behalf. And you know what? Not only do I have the right information, and not only do I believe that that information is true, but I'm, I'm falling into that. I'm surrendering to that. There's a big difference between knowing. We, none of us were in the 1700s to know if there was a guy named George Washington, but a lot of us probably would be really... Um, it'd be dumb of us to say that there wasn't because there's a lot of historical evidence that says that there is. So maybe you're here today and you agree, hey, there's, there was actually a guy, the first president of the United States, that was George Washington. But there's a big difference in coming to a point where we believe that and then coming to a point where we're saying, and you know what, and George Washington is going to save my soul from hell one day. That's not, that's, I'm not doing that. But I am doing that with a particular individual, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who I said there was a historical Jesus. He was there. I believe it. And I don't want to be a fool by saying that he wasn't there, but I believe it. But I'm proving the fact that I do, demonstrating that by placing my faith and my trust in him. So it's the instrumental cause by which we receive it is this trust that God has orchestrated for us to receive this. But this is an important thing, too, and that's alone. Because this has come into, this whole idea has come under uh, attack all throughout the years. And this is the reason why there was a great reformation. And this is why, obviously, Paul is upset in Galatians. Because people are saying, yeah, we can see it's the instrument, and yeah, we believe in faith. But 
It's also important that we, we, we are circumcised, or it's also important that we're baptized, or all these other things, because that we kind of have to merit. There's a relationship where Christ's grace is good, and that kind of cancels out original sin, but, but we've got to work for something. I mean, God can't just declare us righteous based off of us not having good works, right? Well, Christ had the good works, and it was applied to us, so he, he declares us righteous because of what Jesus has done alone. It's by faith alone. No works added at all. And this is where it's a doctrine of first importance because the second that it begins to go down the other road, that's where we get into the passage in Galatians 1 where Paul's like, look, there's a different gospel going on here and it can't. I cannot tolerate. The guy that tolerate is teaching everybody to tolerate people. There's one thing that I can't tolerate and that's another gospel because there's not one and you're sending people to hell by teaching them that there's a way to merit a righteousness. No one will be justified by works of the law. It's only by grace, through instrumental cause, faith, alone, nothing else. Now quickly, before I wrap this up into kind of the summary and the application, there is an important distinction I want to take carefully because I don't understand a lot of it fully, but the, the, the faith of our Roman Catholic friends and our faith separates on this issue of alone. And the reason that it, it separates, like I've mentioned before, is that we believe that this righteousness is imputed to us. It's transferred to our account. Whereas Catholics believe that it's more infused. It's more given inside of us. And that's where when we say we receive it by faith, they say faith's really important. I used to think Roman Catholics were just people that said, hey, you got to be saved by works. I was like, man, those guys ever read the Bible? But actually I was being very extreme in my assessment of them, just like my good Roman Catholic friend sometimes is extreme in saying that every Protestant is someone that says, hey, you just have to believe in Jesus and then you can live how you want to. Well, that's easy, easy believism, and we don't believe in that either. So we're both guilty of having our extremes, but they do come in here and they say, look, salvation is by faith, and it's, it's through Christ. Christ has enabled it to happen. But the instrument by which the justification is applied to us is baptism. And so baptism is where we come in and, and that justification is, is planted in us and it's a little seed and you've got to continually work throughout the rest of your life to maintain that. So my friend is saying, look, we're justified in the beginning. We're continually justified in our lives and one day when Christ comes back, we'll be justified. And so at first I thought maybe we're just defining terms differently because we believe we're justified, we're declared righteous, then we're sanctified, we're made more righteous, or not, we're made more holy and then we're glorified where when Christ comes back, we receive our bodies. And that. So maybe they're just defining the same term for all three. But no, no, it has, a, it has a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is the sense that we're planted a seed of justification here. There's this righteousness that's given and we receive it through the sacrament of baptism. But then when we come up through life, we, we have to keep good works that go along with that. They don't by any means merit it in the sense that we couldn't have done it without faith and without Jesus. But we've got to kind of come in partnership with this. We've got to get to the end of our lives to where eventually we're hopefully more holy so that we don't have to spend as much time in purgatory. And purgatory is really the place where God has set aside a place to where he can further cleanse us from our sins so that eventually I can be fully cleansed of my sin outside of purgatory and stand here righteous. And then God declares me, Tyson, you're righteous. You're righteous because... You, the righteousness I implanted you at the very beginning has grown up to where I can rightly claim you're righteous. 
But we don't believe that at all. We believe that because there's this imputation aspect going on, back here at the very beginning, through faith, and that was it, just giving, giving up and trusting and surrendering, He declared us righteous right here. So it's really important for me to wrap my mind around because there's a difference between this. Because if it is infused within us, then yeah, we've got a long time and a lot of work to get to the point to where we can be declared just at the end of time here. But that doesn't line up with Scripture that talks about we are justified. And then Romans 8 says there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul says there is now no condemnation. So there's a, for us, we believe, yeah, if it's based off of Christ and only through faith, then there's a time right now that I can be declared righteous. I can be declared and there is no, there's no condemnation for me right here. But for our Catholic friends, they're not going to be justified, they believe, until the end. And you have to keep with works to keeping that going. And, and that's a distortion in the sense of what Scripture's teaching here. And when it goes along those lines, it's important to kind of see what's going on. Because my friend's also talking about, you know, we, 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 lo- we can lose our justification. Because if we're coming this way and we create, you know, we do mortal sins that lead to death, then we can get out of this grace. And, you know, we can come back into it through the uh, sacrament of penance and other things like that. But we have to have a contrite heart and confess our sins, and, which are good things. We would say the same thing about our faith. We need to confess our sins to one another and be humble and contrite. But then the added thing is you can get back in it by performing good works that kind of lead to this to where eventually you can become righteous, infused. And then God is right. He's just to say you're righteous because you're righteous. But we don't, you see how we don't agree with that. We're righteous because Christ is righteous. These things don't change here to a lot of plus signs at the end of our life where God's like, uh, yep, righteous. The very beginning with our faith, when it's applied, God says righteous right there. So that's the important aspect. I wanted to just really quickly distinct, uh, make a distinction. That's why the Reformation happened. There's a quote in the Westminster Catechism that says, Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which always do accompany it, so not because of good works that come with it, nor of the good works that are the fruits of it or the results of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed him for justification, but only as it is the instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. And it also says justification is the act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all of their sins and he accepts and accounts their purchase righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputing it to them and received by faith alone. So when we're talking about justification, I know I'm saying a lot and we're getting near the end and it's been kind of weighty, but it's really important to, to kind of get it in our minds. We are saved by, through faith, by God's grace. But this righteousness that we now have is not of ourselves. It's because Christ's righteousness is applied to us. His, he was the one that upheld the standards of the relationship. He was the one that was perfect. But it's how marvelous is it that we can come into union with Him where God can give us the, the rights to all that Christ earned because we're one with Him or we're in relationship with Him. And that, this justification leads to the next aspect in the order of salvation of adoption. We're, we're adopted into God's family. We're His children. 
And we're able to be further sanctified and then eventually glorified because of what Christ does here. The justification is that declaration that it's done. It's done. Now there is no condemnation. Quickly, there is a timing. When does this happen? Well, it's after our response of faith and repentance, conversion. There's, I borrowed this off the uh, kid's wall in there. I'll have to tape it back. This is the Order Salutis. It's got some uh, the different doctrines here in the way in which we're, um, it kind of plays itself out. And a lot of it is simultaneous, so we're not trying to break it up and say that you know, God justifies us and then ten years later he adopts us. Like All this kind of happens like right now. But he first calls us and he regenerates us, converts us, and justifies us. So I want to just briefly explain, when God calls us, and we're hearing the gospel call and that effectual call, and we're going to respond, he first regenerates us. He has to give us a new heart. We're dead in our sins. We can't do anything about that. But he gives us, he quickens us by the power of the Holy Spirit and gives us a new heart so that we can respond. Well, conversion is all about our response. It's our faith. But faith, real faith, is a repentant faith. It's a penitent faith. So it's, I'm responding, I'm not just assessing, I'm, I'm, I know these things are true, I know I'm guilty. I'm responding in faith and repentance, and we're converted. Well, do you see now how justification comes after that? God can't rightly say, Topi is righteous, or he has Christ's righteousness, until he has it. So his, his response of faith, again, doesn't merit it, but once it happens and it's transferred, and the transfer is done, God stands back and says, righteous justification. It's the declaration. It's legal. It's forever. It's done. It's in the courtroom. Imagine you're in the courtroom. Grudem says, close your eyes and you're standing there and you're standing before the king of the universe and God calls you by your name. And he says, John Mark, based off of the life that you've lived and the works that accompany it and you're not faith in Christ and your rejection of the gospel, you are guilty forever. Case closed. And that's the that's it. No hope. It's done. And for unbelievers, that's that's the declaration that you're waiting to hear from God is you're guilty. And Romans one through three it laid it out perfectly. There's no excuse for you. You're guilty. But imagine that God in his love and great mercy made another way to where you're standing before God it says, Look, based off of the work of my son being applied to your account, you are not guilty. John Mark, but you are righteous and you're my child. You've been adopted into the family and welcome home. Like that is a huge thing that my mind will never be able to wrap itself fully around. But I want you to see the declaration has been made in the here and now. The declaration for us. There's no need to wait until we stand before him. God's declared us now. So now there is no condemnation. He's brought what's true. It's going to be true about us that great and last day forward into the present. or Yeah, sort of. Into the present to where it's true of us right now. So that's the timing. So that, down in your notes you see we respond with faith and repentance and that's conversion. And God responds with a legal de- declaration. So when we respond with faith and repentance, God then says yes, these things are true. The accounts have been have been made and you are justified. And the results, I left you a big blank there as we wrap up. Romans 8.1 There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation 
for those in Christ Jesus. Justification, being declared righteous, being declared in the right with God, it immediately, done, right there. There's no more condemnation for us. There's nothing for us to fear. There's no penalty for our sin that we will have to pay because it was fully paid for Christ or through Christ. The declaration is that we are indeed reconciled to God. And this should enable us to live with peace, right? If we know that. And with hope. This is what J.I. Packer says. God's justifying decision is the judgment of the last day, declaring where we shall spend eternity, brought forward into the present and pronounced in the here and now. It is the last judgment that will ever be passed on our destiny. God will never go back on it, however much Satan may appeal against God's verdict. To be justified is to be eternally secure. It's done. No matter what Satan could bring up, there is therefore now no condemnation. No more accusation against my soul. For all the times that I do sin still, there's nothing that Satan can bring a charge against me because it's not based off of what I've done wrong. It's based off of what Christ has done right. And for all the things that I did do wrong, he paid for that. Do we see how that that works itself out? To be justified, to be declared righteous is to be eternally secure. So what's our response as we wrap up? And I pray that as this has been a lot here, as it comes here, that it would continue to transfer and trickle down into your heart through the week. That it's not just today. But the first one is obvious, and this is intended for unbelievers. Someone that hasn't been made right with God. The, the, the response, the appropriate response is surrender to God's grace and turn to Christ in true faith. Surrender to this. This is the gospel. You can get in on this. You can get on this because of what Jesus has done. And your response, the only tool and instrument by which that works is through your faith, through repentance, through a repentant heart that trusts in Christ's work alone and not your works. Listen to this passage in Luke 18.10. Adam read this to us a little while ago. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus lays out a picture here. If you're in the category of needing to be justified, there's an appropriate response and a wrong response. One that trusts in yourself and in your own works will never go down to your house justified. You will not leave that state and be declared righteous. But to leave, in the sense where you come to God, I'm, I'm a guilty, I'm filthy, I recognize this, have mercy on me. I, play, I throw myself into the chair. Take me. It's done at that point. He will. He's there. And that's the good news, is that God's not just the judge that's standing there waiting to condemn you, and then he has to declare you righteous, but he's still this far-off judge. Like I heard somebody say, I can imagine spending time with a judge would probably not be that much fun. But spending time with a father is, Right? Well, God is a just judge, but he becomes our father through adoption. So come and be justified. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The second application is more for those of us who have responded, and that is rest in grace and live like a justified child of God. Justified. Live like a justified child of God. And this is what I mean by rest. Is a lot of us, including me, we still work ourselves out in this law mindset. A lot of us confess our sins to, to each other here. And there's a lot of don't do this, do do this, don't do this. I need to do this. I need to have the spiritual disciplines. All these things are true. They're standards by which we must live. Because faith without good works is not true faith. We've got to be working ourselves out and submitting to the process of God sanctifying us. But I think for a lot of us, including me, when we do fail, when we do reach a point where we have not done something right or we sin, we don't teach ourselves this type of stuff. And we allow ourselves to continue in a state of condemnation. We allow ourselves to continue in a place where we feel like maybe if I just feel more guilt for this, or maybe if I don't do what I know I need to do to get back into right fellowship, it will help kind of atone for the decisions that I just made. Because it's just in me that makes me feel like something's got to be done about what I just did. But that's where we need to rest in the gospel. Because th- there is something that needs to be done about what you just did. But the good news is that it was done already. So this... This has a really important aspect about how we live out our day-to-day life. And I put that passage there for you to go back and look. Romans 8 is all about, hey, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. But this is the, the law that he's set you free from the law of sin and death. Um, because he's done what the law could never do by sending Christ to, to do this for you. So now here's the rest of Romans 8. And it goes through all this awesome stuff. So read through that. But the essence is that we rest in what Christ has done. And that plays itself out in the way in which we respond to even our own sin. So that when I've done something wrong, I don't continue in a state of condemnation. I teach myself, even though there are temporal consequences to sin, I make a bad decision. There will be consequences. But as far as eternal consequences, there will not be. Because I have been, in, I've been moved into this relationship with Christ and there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. So you see how it's kind of almost irreverent to continue on and say, you know, I need to do something to kind of make up for this. That's not it. It's been done. It's been made up for. The only thing left is for us to trust in it. But we've got to fight that. And the only way that that happens, I was talking to Luke this week and he helped me see, the only way that that happens is to be renewed in our mind by being in God's word and and seeing what God says is true about our condition and about what he's done. But in also like in recognizing that when we do fail, we recognize the things that are true and we teach them to ourselves. The thing that I just did, Christ never did that. So he, he earned it for me. He earned the righteousness that I failed to obtain just then. Well, that's good news. But you need to keep going through and say, but for what I just did, not only did he earn it by not doing it, he also paid for what I did too. So there's nothing left for me to do but then to trust and rest in that and turn back to him in faith and, and just throw myself back into him like the first time that I did. We continually respond to the gospel and we rest 
in grace. It's all of grace. Let us not get into the mindset of starting off in grace through faith and then being perfected later on, like Paul says, by works. We were saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. We'll be justified by grace. There's nothing left for us to do but to fall in that and rest in that. But, thirdly, there is a proper response. We need to respond to grace. We need to respond and let, allow sanctification to have its work in our life. But more specifically, we can all walk away from this like Adam prayed before I started and say we respond to this grace by taking the good news to others. This is the good news. When I sat down with my friend this week and he said justification, what is it? I said, let me tell you about an exchange. And I had napkins and I had drawings and I was transferring things over here this way and that way. And by the end of it, he was like, wow, that's really incredible. I don't know where he stands. I'm still praying every day that the more that I teach him about what the gospel is all about, that one day it will go from here to here. Because he would say that he gets it. But I don't know yet. But this is the case. Like we can understand, The more that we understand this for ourselves, not just imputation, but the gospel, the more that we'll feel more confident to take it to our friends. Because the way that I first started a conversation with this guy was he was part of the military. And I walked by him last Easter and said, hey, where'd you go to church for Easter? And he said, I didn't go to church. I'm like, oh yeah, well, why not? It's like, because if the Bible's true about what it says, and the things that I've done, which I've done in the military, the murder I've committed, the other things that I've done, then there's, there's nothing left for me but to, to pay for that and to go to hell. And for the first time in a long time, I didn't have to deal with somebody that I had to convince that they were guilty. And I was like, Bro, I've got to tell you the most amazing news in the world. The most amazing news is that there's a transfer that can happen. There's a, there's a whole account thing that God has set up that you can get in on. So the good news is that you don't have to go to hell for what you've done. People need to hear this, but unfortunately most of the people that I know don't want to see that they even need it. But to get to the point where we see somebody that needs it, man, that's an extra gift. But what I'm saying is that maybe if we continue to take the gospel to our friends, they don't have to respond, but we're planting seeds. We don't know if they will, but we plant seeds and say, respond to the gospel. You could never do this. If you're trusting in this happening, it will never work. But there is a way, so respond to it. So the last passage I'm reading here is Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So God has orchestrated a way to which he could do this. He's orchestrated faith by which we receive it. But he's also orchestrated us to be the way that this news goes forward. He could have done all this and then just started saving people because Christ obeyed it and he paid the penalty. But he's orchestrated that we be the, the vessels that take this good news to the world. We've got to be the ones. And I'm speaking to me. I'm the guy that's guilty of receiving trucks on Monday mornings to truck drivers and then convincing myself of good reasons not to start up good conversations with them. Like, I'm the one that's fearful about this kind of stuff. But what I'm saying is that if we allow this to penetrate our heart to where we, we, are, we respond in joy because of what we've seen has happened, maybe just then we can be renewed in our minds through God's Word to where we really literally are living out joy. And people are like, man, why are you... Why do you have so much joy? What is the reason for the hope that's in you? Man, let me tell you about the gospel. But unfortunately, maybe I'm not really centering my life around the gospel enough to where when I get on Monday morning, I'm not in a good mood. I definitely don't necessarily want to get into a talk about. But people need this. Because if they're going off of 
another system, they're not going to make it. If they're using another instrument, they'll never make it. So let's continue in the same grace we were saved. Let's take this news to the world and let's pray, especially today, that a lot of the lofty things that you find in a theology book about the doctrine of justification can penetrate our hearts to say, this is the application I take from today. I, if I'm a believer, I am no longer condemned. No longer condemned. I'm declared to be in right standing with God. Is it based off my works? Absolutely not. But it's through the work that Christ has done, His righteousness transferred to me. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank You so much for Your love and Your mercy. God, I, I thank You for Your great, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. That when we were lost and blind, we been regenerated and we can see the truth here. And when we saw it, we responded to that call and we, we had we saw the need to have our faith and place our trust in you. That when we do that, and when I did that, you declared us to be in the right standing because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. God, I'm praying that you would open the eyes of people that need to see this for the first time. Allow them to see their need, whether that's in this room now or whether that's in our the, the lives of our friends and family as we take it from here. Open their eyes to see this because without renewed eyes, we'll never see our need. But God, we're so thankful that you do, you're in the business of saving people. You're in the business of opening people's eyes and leading them to a point to where they, they want and need to respond. So help us to fall and rest in the same grace today that saved us at the very beginning. Help us not to continue on in this workspace mentality and and when we do mess up, God, we're so thankful that Jesus stands as our high priest on our behalf now. God, forgive me for the times that I sin and then I feel like I need to atone for that. God, what Christ has done has forever atoned for what I could ever do. So I pray that the joy of that good news would become good news in my heart, would become good news in the people, uh, the Sovereign Hope peoples here in their hearts today as well. God, so that we can leave and legitimately be excited about the good news and see it as good news so that people see that we're sharing what we really honestly believe in and not something that we feel obligated to share because that's what Christians got to do. And then in our sin, even believe that by doing it, we're maybe, maybe brought into better favor with you. God, forgive us of our workspace mentality. Thank you that we're justified by grace alone. And again, Lord, may you be glorified in all things and to you be glory and honor forever. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.